was awesome. We need what we can get right now to bring us into the Advent season, do we not? It's um, a strange time. You look out the window and you feel like you need to go cut the grass. And yet we're supposed to be singing Christmas carols and that kind of thing. So it's, it's 2020. We continue to embrace it. Anybody waiting for January 1st just to be able to flip the calendar and say, let's just, yeah. I have to admit the same thing. I am going to uh, talk to you this morning with a subject that is, I think of critical importance, it's not to diminish the importance of it at all, but it's um, it's taxing. It's a very taxing subject because everything that we're going through wants to prevent us from doing this thing well. And so I recognize that um, it's difficult and sometimes kind of laborious to hear things um, to do in the kingdom of God and the things that the scripture might be calling us to and you're like, I just, I, I'm not sure how to do that because all my norms have been taken away. <clears throat> I have to reinvent how I approach this. <clears throat> so it's a very difficult place to be. And so I, I feel the weight of that as well. Um, but uh, we are going to hit the subject of connection and fellowship and community and all the things that the scriptures call a church to experience Again, we're going to hit it again. And I say again because this has got to be the third or fourth time in the last 18 months that we as a church have walked through what the Bible teaches on how we relate to one another as a church. And uh, the reason for that is because, you know, I, for one, because it's all throughout the scripture, so it's hard to get away from. But but also because um, I, I don't, you would probably relate to this experience, but I feel like I need to hear things over and over again. And it hits me in a different context or the season of my life has changed or the things that I was struggling with before now I'm not, or there's new things I'm struggling with that I wasn't before. And so even hearing some of the same things again can have a different impact. Now we're not going to just hit the repeat button on everything that we've said about uh, church connection and community or what the Bible would call fellowship. Uh, we're not just hitting the repeat button on previous messages, but some of this will be, of course, familiar. This is all in the context of the spiritual discipline path that we've been on. We've been talking about the fact that um, in order for us to grow in Christ, it's just going to require that kind of gymnasium sweat and work and that kind of ethic that this isn't the kind of thing that we just achieve or experience on cruise control. That modern definitions or current experiences of spirituality, as it's so often called, is much more of a passive thing than we think the scriptures are calling us to, or the scripture is talking about engaging in an activity that goes counter to how you and I feel so often. And so getting to that point of just understanding this is going to be work, I, I can't just fluff my way through this kind of thing, that's going to be the biggest um, asset that we have in gaining anything for the kingdom of God. And I've been using this mindset as we've been talking about studying the word of God and, and praying differently and for others and those things over the last couple of weeks. And as we come to this subject of fellowship and then next week, Lord willing, talking about stewardship and how the Lord has free reign and rule in our lives and how we respond to that. It's, I've been sharing this phrase in each of these conversations that just says more than before. And I always want to, um, 
uh, caveat that because more than before can sound like pile on the effort. Do more than you did before. Don't settle for yesterday's whatever and accomplish more and challenge yourself for more. And so that's okay. And it's not like there's uh, anything wrong with necessarily thinking about achieving more. But this isn't meant to be just a hype up, you know, put a fire under you so that you do more what we could call more religious duty, more things to try to impress God or even worse, try to impress other people. That this isn't that trap that I want us to walk in. There's, there's meant to be a bunch of grace in that statement of more than before. Because the reality is, is that you and I have a caricature in our mind of what we think a perfect Christian should look like. One of God's children. This is what they do. This is how they are. You and I, in our honesty, as we look at our reflections in the mirror and stuff, we go, ah, I don't think I'm that person. I'm not sure if I'll ever be that person. That's not necessarily a bad place to be because I believe that those who are going to grow in their walk with Christ are those who have a constant sense of there's a lot more for me to learn. I have not figured this whole thing out. But but the reality of the experience of that is that you and I will always have an image in our mind and we'll always feel like we come up short of that. That's why we need to wrestle with the grace of the cross of Jesus Christ. If he is the perfect standard and he's the perfect payment for our shortcoming, then it all goes back to him. We look back to him for achieving all of those things that we know we aren't going to this side of eternity. So more than before is a statement to help us understand that what the Lord doesn't expect from us is to generate our own perfection. That we're never going to accomplish what Jesus has already accomplished for us. We need to rest in that perfection. We need to rest in his, in his payment for our shortcomings. And we receive that and we're thankful for it. However, it should spur us on to want to be more like him. So I want to grow a little bit more than I did before. I want to move in that right direction. I don't want to settle with just being passive or lazy in that grace. I want it to challenge me. So when we come to this idea of fellowship, we have to understand that our definition of what the Bible intended for fellowship is, is very, very different and, and that we're going to have to make some major adjustments in order to get there. Again, if you've heard some of this message before, this might add just another piece of the puzzle. Uh, fellowship, in terms of what the scriptures are aiming at, is not best defined by especially our recent Western experience, but, but even more so, I think, inherent in us as Americans or anything like that is that idea of we have prided ourselves on individualism, on getting the job done, of, of surviving the difficult task, of forging a new way, and all those things are, are very impressive, and we've enjoyed the great reward and the benefits of that labor. But when it comes to doing the thing that the Bible has called us to do, there's a sharing experience, there's a humility that comes with it that so often our individual mindset robs us of. You might remember some months ago we walked through Acts chapter 2, uh, in a, particularly in, in portion uh, beginning in verse 42, to understand what the tone or what the environment was in the early church with those that were new Christians and tasked with with kind of coming together and sharing this experience together, this is what it looked like. The scripture says in Acts 2, 42 and beyond, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So far, sounds like church, right? 
get together, we break bread, we pray, we do those things. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. It showed up in verse 45 by them selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And we talked about there was this euphoric kind of getting swept up in the movement kind of thing that can happen when we find our people or when we see the need and we feel like we're all doing this together. There was this incredible movement of the spirit that gelled and unified the people of the church. So much so that they stopped caring about the things that were belonging to them. And they were like, whatever. We found Jesus. We found friendship and fellowship. We found all of these things. We don't need the other stuff that I was building a life for. And they were just willing to kind of let it all go. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. It's no secret that you and I live in what we would think of as the most connected generation in all history. If I want to know what's happened 12 hours away from us in another time zone, I can just pull it up on my phone and find out what news showed up in China or any of these places. Or, or if I want to, if I haven't checked in on you in a year, I can still find out what you had for dinner last night. It's the weirdest world, isn't it? We are quote unquote connected in the sense of, I know certain things about you or your experiences or things, but yet at the same time, I think we would all acknowledge the fact that we are in the most lonely, perhaps the most lonely generation in all of history as well. And I don't know what all the reasons are for that. Other than the fact that it seems pretty clear that we don't trend towards connection we don't trend towards uh, uh, looking after one another. We don't do these things automatically. You know, those that would ascribe to evolution and things would say that we're progressing. It's this survival thing and it's getting better and better. But yet we see the disintegration, the entropy of all the things that the Lord had originally put in motion are starting to break down. The wheels keep trying to come off. Every little lug nut is getting looser and looser and looser. And yet we think we are trending towards being better for one another. And we're just not. COVID is only the latest and perhaps one of the more effective threats that we've had in our history to our God-given design of what he intended with fellowship. The word that was given to us in Acts 2 that was repeated over and over is the word together. And koinonia is that where that word comes from. And this is uh, what the scriptures would say is to be drawn together by intimate participation. You see that there's a, there's a partnership that happens as we roll up our sleeves together or we enter into a thing together. That's what the Bible has intended by this togetherness. In the scriptures, we often see it as this kind of idealized state of fellowship or praying for one another, carrying one another's spiritual burdens. And we see that and we go, that's what we need to be about. There's very little intellectual disagreement with that. But yet when it comes to uprooting our own lives and, and really being involved in that, that's a whole different matter because we start to run into the friction of real life, the busyness of schedules or the shyness of our personality or the awkwardness of entering somebody else's world. All these real life situations kind of hinder what seems to be ideal coming off the page to us. 
So our time together this morning is an open call to engage in our relationships. I would ask that you and I would consider reaffirming our commitment to relationships of engagement and not just proximity. It's like we started off with the scriptures. We are, we're fine with being around the Bible. We're not Bible antagonists. We're fine with people praying around us, praying for us. Even people that don't even know the Lord don't really sling mud in your face when you say, I'd like to pray for you. Thanks. I'd appreciate that. I don't believe in your God, but if that's something that you want to do, fine. I'm, I'm fine with that. We're, we're okay with the proximity of what faith is pushing for more of. We're okay with it being within our camp, but sometimes it's very, very difficult for us to cross that line with just being in proximity to the things that we know we should be about and actually engaging in them. So the title of this message is to live with God's people, not just near them. Being near God's people was uh, very available to us. In particular, in our church, for our area, it was great to be able to see so many people come together and, and sing together and, and to nod at the same scriptures together or to laugh at the same jokes or to shake one another's hands. And I, Do you remember when we used to be able to do all that? And, and all of those things were things that we could put as markers of comfort of saying, that's what our fellowship looks like. I have a place I belong to. I have a group of people that get me. Then all of a sudden that carpet is kind of yanked out from under our feet. And we're wrestling with the question now, almost day in and day out. Is this what the Lord intended? Did, did COVID surprise God somehow? Was the church not prepared to be friends with one another? Was, was this idea of koinonia, this fellowship that we would have intimate participation, did God write that before he realized what social distancing would require? So it's time that I think we, we seek to build a church that no longer defines success by outward tangible measures. As much as I enjoy the outward tangible measures... Part of the occupational hazard I have is this ego-driven thing that responds well or poorly to the way people show up or like what you do or anything like that. And so when that's all squirrely and out of balance, you start to try to, where do I find my center? What do I hook my thing in? And that's like all of us. You take away our norms and our predicted measurements, and all of a sudden we don't know our bearing. Here's what I believe, though. I believe that as... Crowds begin to come back, and they will. I have no reason to doubt that they will. I don't know what they'll look like, whether or not we'll see the same faces, all that kind of stuff. That's going to be up to the Lord. But if we take the time that has been given to us now to figure out this thing of intimate participation, this idea of koinonia, and do it well then we will we will be doing our dead level best to resist this temptation. To base the success of our fellowship on the numbers of people that are coming back. We will be more interested in the individual. We'll be more giving of ourselves in order to see that accomplished. It'll be less about the program, less about the stage presentation, those kinds of things. And more about the opportunity that we have to live life together. Again, I started off by saying we all intellectually agree with this, do we not? I can't speak for everybody in the room, but I would gather to say... That 98% of the people that are in this room, people that I know that are in the other room, people that are watching from home, I know for the most part, understand that in a sense to that, that that's a good thing for us to want. 
but it's the rare few that will press forward and not be satisfied with anything short of that. So let's look at Koinonia through the through the, the eyes of several different perspectives here. The first thing is I think we should see it through the lens of service. This, I believe, is the starting point for fellowship for a lot of important reasons. The scriptures have spelled out for us what Jesus has done to demonstrate this. It's very, very clear. You don't have to flip a whole lot of pages in order to see that Jesus laid down a perfect demonstration of what friendship looked like, of what fellowship looked like, about caring for one another. He's, he's globally famous for that through all of history. It's captured in one of my favorite passages of scripture in Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8. Paul says that we should have this mind among ourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's hard for me to to be in this passage and not illustrate it the way that it was explained to me so many years ago. It's, we need to imagine that Jesus is on a ship that is moving in a particular direction that is being powered by the sweat and the energy of slaves. They're all locked and chained together below deck in the hot and sweaty, nasty area. And their task is to take a hold of that oar and just power it and move it in that direction. Now, Jesus is Jesus, the king of the world, the, the, the creator of the wood that built the ship. He has every right to be above deck at the helm, having people bring him his tea, enjoying the sun in his face, knowing that they're doing their job, getting the ship where it needs to go. The demonstration though for us, and this is the crux of the gospel, is that Jesus left that post, though he was entitled to it. He left it, went below deck, and he links up with the slaves. He grabs his own place, asks them to scoot over, and he gets his hands on the oar, and he starts rowing with them, putting his own blood, sweat, and tears into the process. I think this is what Paul has demonstrated. What he's getting across is that, that Jesus demonstrated for you and me that even though he had every right to a position, he decided not to hang on to it, grasp it like it was something worth clinging to, He went below and said, the point is to get the ship to a direction. The point isn't for everyone to look at me and say, what a great captain he is. Not yet. Jesus would have that. So Jesus demonstrates an attitude. You and I see it on display and we go, that's what we should be. And and so many um, pulpit ministries around around the country in particular, those that I would not necessarily consider to be evangelical, which is biblically based. So many pulpits would be comfortable saying that message and say, since he left the demonstration and the example, you go and do likewise, be blessed, be warm and filled. Let's come back next week and do it all again. But there's a problem. The problem is is that when you and I go to engage what he's so clearly demonstrated for us, we run into ourselves. We run into something that puts a bit of a hitch in our giddy up as maybe someone from Texas would explain it. This attitude is demonstrated. Our attitude is demonstrated in Matthew 20. And I want to walk us through this chapter just a little bit because it's, it's one of my favorite passages, not because I just agree with it all the time, but because it's so hard to, so hard to take. It's so hard to 
apply in a lot of different ways. Jesus is telling a, a parable of how a landowner who has a vineyard needs to get the work done, goes into town, metaphorically goes in with the pickup truck and he finds a bunch of guys that are looking for a day's labor. And he says, I've got work for you. Jump in the truck. And so they do under the agreement that he'll pay them the average day's wage. They know what they're getting into. Sure. Let's go. They go, they get the work done. And as they're going along, he's looking at the field. He's looking at what they're not going to accomplish by days. end. he says, I need more help. So the landowner jumps back in his truck and goes back in and, and maybe even though it's a parable, we can't draw out all the, the uh, details of the story and apply things to it, but maybe because he's thinking, Hey, look, it's pretty late in the day. If you're the guy who's waiting for a job to come around and you're thinking, oh, I'm not going to start something now. I'm not going to have time to finish. I'll just count this day of loss and start tomorrow. The day uh, the owner goes back into town and says, you know what? I'll make a deal with you. If you give me the last two good hours of your day, I'll pay you like you've been there all day long. This guy's are like, sweet. Let's go. Jump in the truck. He goes. They get the work done. At the end of it, you can almost imagine like an assembly line. They're all kind of there in a row. And he's walking down and he's paying them the denarius. He's giving them what he agreed to give them. So all the people that have made what they expected to make, they're happy with it. And they're like, okay, good. That worked out well. Until they look over and see that the guy that only put an hour or two in is getting the same exact pay that they got. Now, I think at this point, it's important for us to put ourselves in their sandals and just kind of go, so what would I think about as I saw that happening? We get the benefit of hindsight. We, we can look back and see where the, where the error takes place. We can say, oh, they were being greedy. It's not, it's not up to them to decide what the landowner does or how much he pays. But, but if you're looking over after you've just given everything, you left it in the vineyard, there's nothing left. And you're looking over, what? okay, try not to look. Then it just kind of follows you in your mind. You're thinking, this doesn't seem right. Why wouldn't he give me more? Why wouldn't he even acknowledge, hey, look, I thought we were going to get this kind of work out of you, but we got so much more here, giving you more. There's just something in our human experience that can't help but compare and to expect that we should be rewarded like anybody else. Jesus is uh, is describing this exact scenario. So then he says at the end of the story in verse 16, he says, so the last will be first and the first shall be last. That's a statement we throw out in in culture and society all the time, right? It's a healthy reminder for us to be patient, to understand that others might be in line before us for whatever reason. And it's okay for us to be sort of the last in line. But there's a direct impact to how you and I approach getting along with one another that is really pregnant in this principle. The last will be first and the first shall be last. Before we get there, let's continue. At the end of explaining this parable, Jesus then sits with or explains to his closest friends, the disciples who are following him. He says, okay, that story's done. Now, I want you to hear this in verses 18, 19. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. And the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. The son of man is Jesus. He's talking about himself. Guys, buddies, I want you to hear something. Story's done. Last shall be first. That kind of thing. First shall be last. Uh, I'm about to go and give my hands over to the magistrates and those that can condemn me to death. It's about to happen. Verse 19, they'll deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged. And 
crucified and he will be raised on the third day. That should mess with our minds a little bit if we also understand that when Jesus, when it actually happens to Jesus, they act like it's catching them off guard. They act like, oh, wait, wait, you didn't give us a heads up on this. We didn't know that you were going to lay your life down. We didn't know. Well, that's why we cut ears off of the soldiers. That's why we did all these intervention techniques and everything, because we didn't think this was right. We didn't know this was supposed to happen, but he explains it right here. There must be a reason why it somewhat goes over their head. Jesus says the last shall be first and the first will be last. By the way, I'm going to lay my life down and uh, I will be mocked, flogged and crucified. But I'll come back after three days. That is just this closing little segment that just is sandwiched between parable of the vineyard and then what happens next. The mother of two of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, I want to work out an arrangement with you. I love my boys. They're good boys. As any mother would say, right? They, they adore you, Jesus. They go everywhere you go. I don't see them for months because they're out serving you. So I ask this one favor as a mother, do this for me. When you get to heaven, I want one sitting on your right hand and one sitting on your left. I want to be able to beam with pride as a mom and see all of that. Would you do that for me? The last will be first. The first will be last. By the way, I'm going to be mocked, flogged and crucified, delivered over for death. But I'll, I'll hear your, your question. <laughs> but the other 10, verse 24 says, when they heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. <laughs> Why should you get in line before us? Why do you get that place of prominence and position? What, what makes you think that we wouldn't be able to sit on his right hand or on his left? Jesus stops all the bickering, all the chatter, which is, I think, the reason why his explanation of what was going to happen to him went right over their heads because they were just thinking about their position in line, what they were due. Verse 25, Jesus called to them and said, you know this. This has been your experience through all of life. You know that the Gentiles, this is the, the world around you and the system around you. You know that they lord it over them. These rulers of the Gentiles lord their authority over their subjects and their great ones exercise authority over them. You guys have seen this on display all the time. They're walking around, looking down their noses, reminding you how much authority they have, saying statements like, don't you know who I am? You can't miss them because they're dressed to the hilt. You know everything about them. That's how they do it. That's all they've got. But Jesus says in verse 26, it shall not be so among you. It's a very emphatic statement. It's like Jesus saying, I'm not going to let that into my camp. You guys have seen way too much of that. That isn't going to happen here. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. This is what I've been saying all chapter long is what he's saying. And to give his life as a ransom for many. What does this have to do with you and I getting along with one another? What does it have to do with us being good Christians in a good church where we look after each other. It's this acknowledgement to the fact that you and I do not naturally engage in relationships through the lens of service. I'll admit, I want friends that I like being around. I want to be around people that it's easy to spend time with. If someone is a quote unquote project or anything like that, sometimes 
I have to find the energy for that sort of thing. Because I am not Jesus. He is winning me over. He is moving in my heart. He is gaining more and more parts of my heart as I grow and go through this journey. But I need to ascribe to this idea of, Lord, you need more of my heart than I've given you before. My expression of fellowship needs to be seen now through the things that I can do for others instead of what I'm so tempted to do, which is what can they do for me? Secondly, I think that koinonia, fellowship, needs to be expressed through the practice of friendship. Jesus said in John 15, 13, that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Jesus is again demonstrating, I'm going to do this. I'm going to lay my life down for you. But he's giving us a clue here that, that even the act of friendship is going to cost you something. That in his case, he is going to literally lay his life down for his friends. It shouldn't surprise us, though. It, it would surprise so many people in our society from a functional level that real friendship requires effort and sacrifice. I'm sure you've noticed, but the temperature has changed from, from effort and sacrifice, from relationships of days gone by where we used to approach um, our fellow man and woman that way. Now it's become a matter of compatibility. I can pretty much click my likes and dislikes on a screen and get matched to the people that I should be able to spend the rest of my life with. It's, it's, a, it's an, a, a relationship built on convenience and, and personal order. Sadly, this is making its way into the church. It's making its way into uh, the, the, the environment in which we live in. It's making its way so often into my own heart that, that the, the people that would require more effort, more sacrifice on my part, eh, we're just not clicking anymore. That's why we need to express our fellowship through an actual practice of friendship. These things will not come automatically. Remember, we warned over the last couple of weeks, it's not the same as being passive, jumping in the river and letting it take us downstream. That so much of the faith is more like a, you're, the, the, the current is pushing you downstream, so you've got to turn around and fight that and be like the salmon who's jumping over it and trying to make your way up the stream. We have to demonstrate key characteristics of friendship. We need to seek to truly connect with people. And if you really want to connect with people, you'll fight through all the barriers that get put in your way, all the obstacles of social distance and all that kind of stuff. And you'll say, uh, so whatever is allowed to me or taken away from me, all those sorts of things, I've got to figure out a way to show this person I know they exist. That's what connection looks like. We've got to share the key characteristic of love. I'm a broken record for saying this, but it's been such a helpful definition in my life that love is simply doing the best for the one that you love. So if my friendship is built on what is best for the person I love, I will do the easy things and the hard things. I make this commitment to them. I express it through loyalty. When's the last time... You had a, a, a friction or something with a friend or a relationship in your life that you knew you were on opposite sides, but it was really important for you to express to them, even though we're on opposite sides of this, I'm going nowhere. I, I can challenge you. I can try to correct you based on how you respond to it, but I'm in this with you. 
because you matter to me. Maybe they're doing something that's going to embarrass you or that's going to make you look like you're a weirdo for sticking with them and yet you engage in it anyway. Where has that gone? If we're going to be a friend with another person, we're going to pray for them. We're going to take the time to hear their needs and requests. We're going to pray for the things they haven't even shared with us. We're going to let them know that we're praying for them. We're going to change our perspective on who they are and what our relationship and responsibility is to them. The story is told of a a young family who's been relocated for their job and they're going to a new new town and they're coming into, they're rolling into this town, not knowing anybody there, not knowing what to expect. Their house is prepared and waiting for them. So they decide, look, we need some intel. They see a farmer on the side of the road. They pull off to the side and they stop him, flag him down and they ask him, hey, we just want to know what would be your take on the people of this town? These are friendly bunch or are they kind of cold or what? And he said, well, I don't really know how to characterize all of them for you. He says, but I'd ask you, how would you describe the place that you left? And they said, oh man, we couldn't wait to get out of there. We just found the people to be distant and cold and things. And we wanted to go to some place where it was easier to start these friendships. He goes, well, then I suspect you'll probably find this place much like the place you left. Because he's trying to give them an indication that their perspective on what was required in order to have these kinds of connections needed to change. That these weren't the things that were going to just show up at their doorstep the day that they move in with that, with that round cake prepared for them. And now all of a sudden we're best friends forever and all these kinds of things. That this was always going to be work. It was always going to be commitment. We needed to change our perspective on what these friendships were for. And of course a friend affirms the other. Is in their corner. Listens to them. How difficult is it to listen to others? And not have your next thing to say loaded, ready to go. And of course, accepting of them, regardless of what they present to you. This is not a dismissive pass over all bad behavior. And ah, shucks, that's just them being them. I never say anything. It's not that. There's all kinds of challenge in friendships. There's iron sharpening iron. There's all kinds of um, uh, friction that plays out as we try to help the other person be better. Because again, love is doing the best for the one that we love. But it's accepting them as they are, knowing that there's a lot of rough edges on all of us. So that's why I believe that good fellowship in the church needs to be expressed through the practice of friendship. Lastly, I would say that there's a principle in scripture that plays out that we see over and over and over again that would be applicable to our topic. And that that is that fellowship needs to be advanced from the inside out, that it starts someplace local before it goes somewhere in wide distribution. In Galatians 6.10, we see it says, so then as we have opportunity Let us do good to everyone. So that's what we would expect. That's our religious bumper sticker. We're supposed to be good to everybody. So just go out and do that, would you? Go find everyone and be good to them all the time. That's the pressure. That's the caricature that we paint. We're supposed to be good to everybody. And there's truth to that. It says it right there in the phrase. But it says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Is that because church people are better than non-church people? We should like them better? Because we think they're worth more of our time or our effort? No. I think there's more going on here that we see playing out in so many other parts of scripture. In particular in the section, in the, uh, in the passage that we call the Great Commission where it says 
to, as we go out to save the world, we do it first in our own hometown and then in the geographic region and then we move out beyond. And so there's a principle here that, that I think is hinting at authenticity. Our friendship, our service, our fellowship needs to start with those that are closest to us so that it can more healthily work its way outward. I could go out and be a friend to everybody. I've seen a lot of pastors make this mistake. And I've seen a lot of guys just be great with everybody. And yet things at home were just kind of really disconnected. That their spouse didn't feel like that guy's friend. That their kids weren't looked out for or loved. That even some of their closest friends, if you look under the hood, there aren't a lot of friends there. But they're great with everybody. Everybody loves coming to see that guy. This is a really difficult thing for us to admit and for us to acknowledge the fact that it's a lot easier for us to be good, to be really good and great to people that don't have as much investment in us. People that don't see us with our flaws and all those other sorts of things. There's a principle at play here that if you and I are going to be good for them out there, it's because we've gotten good with those that are closest to us, those that need us the most, and those that are hardest to snow job those that are hardest to fool. So Paul told the Galatians, as we have opportunity, be good for everybody, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. So I bring this up here so that we can narrow our scope a little bit. I I want faith to be known in the entire community as being a friendly church and for you to get the, the credit for your smile and your welcoming and all those sorts of things. But the reality is, is that's only going to show up in a few moments. It might help somebody stay when they come through the doors and feel welcomed and that's all fine and good. It might show up when we do an event that's out there handing out something to somebody in need. They go, I was really nice of them. And then it moves on. All those things are great. They're like little data points that help give God the glory for the big thing he's doing around the world. But for you and me, it's such an easy, easy trap to fall into. Say, that's me being a connected, giving, fellowshipping individual. I think the call is for us to do it locally with those that see us, those that are around us, those of us that are in this room, not because you're better than those that are out there, but because you can hold me accountable. I can hold you accountable when the wheels start to come off. We are adopting as best as we can, slowly but surely, we are adopting what we would call a parish model to oversight and connection here at Faith. It's a slower transition because I think it needs to be authentic and it's not the kind of thing that you can rush. But we've got a lot of faithful men that have accepted the call to be elders in our church. And um, because the Lord has given us such a, a, a capable team, we uh, thought that he was positioning us to be able to look after the membership, the flock or the, the, the fellowship of faith in ways that we could look at it kind of like geographical regions. If you're in Waterville, then maybe this elder is going to get to know you more personally and you'll get to know him so that you can call him in the middle of the night instead of the pastor. Just kidding. <laughs> Nobody calls me much. It's okay. Uh, I, uh, yeah, anyway, I can go off on a tangent on that. I give Pastor Bill a lot of credit for that in giving the uh, the shared responsibility and spread it out quite a bit. So the pastoral staff don't believe when pastors all talk, well, you know, you got to be a, a, a flock leader 24-7. I haven't always felt that. So don't take that as an open invitation. Good. He needs to be bothered more. 
but it is a reality. We're very blessed that way. But it also tells us that we are positioned and able to be able to look after the needs of our people and to form relationships with them on a much closer, stronger basis. So we had to back it up and say, so who are the people that are closest to us? Who are the ones that have said, I'm committing my accountability to the church, kind of signing on the dotted line and that sort of thing. And so we said, we can do that with our membership. Very difficult to do that with six, 700 people, but we can do that with the membership, which is, you know, uh, approaching sort of 50% of that attendance. So we can do that. So let's look at how they're located. Let's see if we can get to know them. But it's a two-way street, and it's a difficult connection to make because, again, something looks ideal on paper, but then when we start adding human personality and experience and difficulty and schedules and all that stuff, it kind of gets a little wonky and weird. So I'm going to ask you to do us a favor as we do this a little bit more. Treat us like the, I don't mean to offend our elders, it's not like you need it this badly, but treat us like the junior high kid at the high school, at the, at the dance. I really want to dance with that girl. I have no idea in the world how to ask her. I don't know what she's going to say. And then every once in a while, I, I, you know, girls, you do have the ability of playing hard to get, but still giving a hint. But if you tried hard enough, it would probably work. So there's a little bit of that that needs to happen as we're forming friendships and connections. We can't be hard to get all the time. We can't be so shy that we're stuck on the other side of the gym. It's almost like two people need to meet in the middle and try this engagement thing a little bit and see where it goes. So that's just a simple kind of play out of this. As you're evaluating, what do I do next with this? If I've been challenged to, 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 to approach relationships through service or, or through friendship, where does it begin? Of course, it's going to be with the people that you would consider your peers, people in your small groups. Uh, which we have our connect groups available. If you're not in one of those, you need to really look into being a part of that community. We have some that have been together for years because they couldn't imagine splitting up. And they've seen and experienced things in each other's lives that they never would have been able to weather without those friendships. But those take time to develop too. We don't need to force them. We just need to make ourselves available to them and figure out what is the Lord calling me to do more than I did before in this regard. How do I give him more ownership of my heart and of my life? And so as an elder is reaching out to you, if you're a member, if you're not yet a member, you should really be considering doing that because, again, we're going to be pouring a lot of emphasis into that relationship. We usually do our membership rounds once a year, and uh, we've had a strange couple of years, uh, and so we've decided not to do any in 2020, but we'll be looking to putting those back on the calendar in 2021. But as you have that relationship with your overseers or your elders to, to make it something that they, they do want to hear from us. So it, it's okay to reach out to them once in a while too and just say, hey, you know, I'm praying for you too or this is what's going on in our life or if you could pray for our kids while they're going through this in school and stuff. Nothing would thrill these guys more than to be able to begin that relationship together with God's people. It's available to you as well as you get to know people in small groups or you get to know faithers in your own town and say, how come I don't know that my neighbor is someone that goes to my church? How do we start making these connections? How do we start building these relationships that are COVID tight? You know, that are, that are something, the next threat, the next challenge that comes and we're like, you know, we're not going to weather it all shaky like we did the last time. I'm not going to lose such connection with people that I'm sharing this faith with. 
These are the things that we need to do as we prepare, as we look forward to being able to welcome gatherings back, as we get to open up our doors and have meals together for no apparent reason other than just hanging out or game nights or other things like that, that we've all talked about, that we all had uh, intention of having implemented all through 2020 and none of that was able to be a reality. Rather than waiting for those things to happen that allow us to hide behind that curtain of big crowd, I feel connected. We need to press into this and do this on an individual basis. As awkward, as uncomfortable as it is, we need to give the Lord more of ourselves to be able to engage this way. And it will have tremendous dividends in your, in your spiritual growth and in your maturity. Not just because you're approaching it because I need this, but because you're approaching it because somebody else needs my investment into their life. Would you please stand and let's close our time in prayer as the worship team makes their way forward. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for your word. And I thank you, God, for your people. Lord, it's uh, been really the lifeblood of our sustenance as an organization to know that we're still connected. Lord, we're connected to people that we haven't seen their face in many months. We know we're connected because we share a heart for the passion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that we have the same forgiveness of our sins. And we know that we will be united with one another when all of this is behind us. But Lord, until that time, I pray that you would give us a special boldness and a willingness, God, to be a friend, to serve one another's needs, to build a community of real intimate participation with one another. Lead us in the ways that would please you in that regard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.